Hey everyone, welcome to Vegan Theology. This is episode 11. This is Kevin Hale. And this is Sarah Hale. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Yeah, how's it going for you, Sarah? I'm excited for this conversation. I've yeah. been I've been very excited. I read this chapter, I finished it early in the week, and been anxious to talk with you about it ever since. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I was I was also just thinking we we say vegan theology, but we we rarely say this is vegan theology for the least of these. For the least of these. And that the only reason I was reminded of that is because of this chapter right. that we're going to discuss today that I think captures what we were trying to communicate with that phrase. I think this chapter is definitely in line with that. Nice. And that's one of the things that we were anxious to find out is how has our thinking thus far, uh, how does it line up with the theologians who are building a vegan theology? Right, or an animal theology. And, yeah. Right. How much are we lining up with other people who right. are thinking these ways? And I wonder, yeah, I've noticed Andrew Lindsay, David Clough, others speak in terms of an animal theology and not, not a vegan theology, not a big deal, um, maybe mm-hmm. semantics, but... Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll come to understand. It. It's really about the animals in this case. Yeah. Not our diet necessarily. Well, so. and veganism is not just about a diet. Right. It's it's definitely about redefining how we view all of creation. Right. Non-human creatures and how we believe they have a right to exist outside of what's best for humans. Right. All right, well, let's dive in. We have been going through Andrew Lindsay's 1995 publication, the book called Animal Theology, and this week we'll be discussing chapter two, and I love the title of this chapter, The Moral Priority of the Week. Mm -hmm. As soon as I saw that, I just was like, yes, I resonate down to a cellular level. This is going to be good. (laughs) This is going to be true. And good. the moral priority of the week. Andrew Lindsay comes out. He comes out of the gate swinging. <laughs> like he doesn't waste any time. That's awesome. I'm going to read the first paragraph of this chapter. Is is what is owed animals as God's creatures satisfied by the language of respect, responsibility, and rights? So, if you recall, the first chapter of this book, he defended that animals are worthy of our respect. We have a responsibility to them and that they have rights. So now he's asking, is what is owed satisfied just by thinking about it in those terms? He says, in this chapter, I argue from a theological perspective that we need to go even further, that a morally satisfying interpretation of our obligations to animals cannot simply rest with a claim for equal consideration as advanced by some animal liberationists. I mean, keep in mind, the people who have come out saying that animals should enjoy equal treatment to humans, that in itself is a controversial, revolutionary way of thinking. Right. Right? Like, a lot of people think, okay, whoa, you've gone too far if you're saying that animals are equal to humans. But here, Lindsay's saying that doesn't go nearly far enough. We, from a theological perspective, we have to go even further. 
that a morally satisfying interpretation of our obligation to animals cannot simply rest with a claim for equal consideration as advanced by some animal liberationists. Drawing upon the notion of divine generosity exemplified in the person of Jesus, I suggest that the weak and the defenseless should be given not equal, but greater consideration. The weak should have moral priority. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because, you know, we talked about uh, in an episode or two past about the Sermon on the Mount and yeah. the Beatitudes. And this is gospel theology. And this is kind of what we were saying was creation care theology. If you think about Jesus's message in in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Right. You know, looking out for the oppressed. And then the whole gospel, looking out for the widow, looking out for orphans, mm-hmm. looking out for the sick. Yeah. God is concerned with those who are downtrodden, right. those who are struggling, yeah. those who are... Pe- people in poverty. Yeah. Right. But the fact that he's saying, drawing on the notion of divine generosity exemplified in the person of Jesus, that's what he's going to be basing this chapter on, is basically what God reveals about God in the person of Jesus and the self-pouring out, the self-sacrificing that God does on behalf of creation should be what we are exemplifying, it should be mm. our model. Right. That generosity is is what we should be striving for. Mm. That should be our rule. He goes into a criticism of this typical animal liberation, equal treatment or equal consideration for, for animals. He basically criticizes Peter Singer. Mm quite a bit in this chapter, because Peter Singer in 1974, he was one of the earliest people to come out with a published argument for animal liberation. His article was titled, All Animals Are Equal. And in that, it sounds like animal liberation when you, at first, when you look at Peter Singer's writing, you know, and we know his book, Animal Liberation, because he says things like, we need to expand our moral horizons and we have to have an extension or a reinterpretation of the basic moral principle of equality. And if we're not to be counted among the oppressors, we need from time to time to examine ourselves and in particular ask whether our own actions are not based on some arbitrary bias in favor of our own group or prejudice against some other. That's really sounds good that yeah we do need to check ourselves and question ourselves like why are we always looking out for ourselves or our group and we do need to be more honest about that but as we go through this chapter Lindsay really points out that Singer is not really for the animal liberation that he presents at first Mm -hmm. he has these major qualifications throughout which I'll get into in a sec, but he also is very utilitarian. Right. And I think that really offends Andrew Lindsay, which is kind of fun to read. So Lindsay points out that Peter Singer's equality of animals has some major qualifications, one of them being, and I'll just read right from Singer here, 
Uh, he says the extension of the basic principle of equality from one group to another does not imply that we must treat both groups in exactly the same way or grant exactly the same rights to both groups. Whether we should do so will depend on the nature of the members of the two groups. The basic principle of equality, I shall argue, is equality of consideration. And equal consideration for different beings may lead to different treatment and different rights. Hmm. So it's, it's like this saying, okay, look, all I'm arguing for is let's give them equality of consideration, but the conclusions we could come to may not look like equality at all. Hmm. Lindsay says Singer's notion of equality is prescriptive rather than factual. And the way I'm interpreting that is we still get to decide how we want to deal out rights. Mm. It's not based in fact that they actually deserve rights or that they have inherent rights. Singer does base his notion of equality similar to Jeremy Bentham on the idea of sentience. Their definition of sentience basically is that if an animal can feel pain, if they are, have an ability to experience pain or the uh, ability to have happiness or experience enjoyment, then they deserve equal consideration. Hmm. And Singer also goes on to criticize philosophers historically for believing that only humans are ends in of themselves and that everything other than a person can only have value for a person is what he says. He boils down philosophy to that. And then, of course, Singer criticizes the Christian tradition that believes that only mankind has value. And, you know, Lindsay agrees. He says, the Christian tradition has culpably reinforced, if not generated, a whole range of negative responses to animal welfare. But Lindsay wants to go further, and he wants a more theologically robust and consistent platform on which to consider animals. Right. And so he says, rather than the equality paradigm, he's like, I have a better paradigm. And he calls it the generosity paradigm. Lindsay stresses that any decent theological insight must not be grounded in humans' superior abilities but we need to ground our theology in God, and in particular, God's attitude towards creation, mm. which I find refreshing, right? Because right. so often people are like, oh, obviously humans are special. Look, look at what humans can do right. compared to animals. Look at all these capabilities that humans have. Right, but it's always a funny argument to me because it's still very anthropocentric. We live in Montana, and we can step outside and see a bald eagle flying and doing its thing, and humans can't fly. Right. And we don't have amazing eyesight like osprey. We don't... I mean, there's just so many capabilities that we don't have. I know, do you know what I mean? That animals do. That animals do have. And then you find out how intelligent so many of these animals are, octopi. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just it's just crazy what we're learning about animals and the capabilities they have and the, and the sense of smell. And hmm. I mean... It blows your mind. We don't even, we can't even compete on the level with animals on, on, on so many capabilities. So that argument is still very anthropocentric. We always talk in terms of intelligence. Well, I mean, 
we could argue, not that this is the place, but intelligence is a manufactured idea that came out of the whole eugenics movement. You know what I mean? I don't want to go off on a tangent, but this argument is very one-sided. I noticed that one, I think maybe the last chapter of this book, he touches on eugenics. Yeah. So maybe... Well, because you, you have to dismantle the whole intelligence argument, mm-hmm. in my opinion. I mean, intelligence isn't everything. Yeah. I feel like we should come up with a new word because when you talk about how smart all these animals are, we always, you know, a lot of times we use the word intelligence and that's comparing it to the word that we came up with. But I wonder if there's a better way to describe it, extract it out of the whole eugenics thing. Anyway. Yeah. So Lindsay really wants our our ideas around animals to be deeply rooted in theology. And he says it has to be grounded in God and in particular God's attitude toward creation. So what is God's attitude towards creation? And he argues it can be summed up in one word, generosity. He starts quoting from Karl Barth mm. again, which is interesting. Like he obviously has great respect for Karl Barth. Right. Um, and Karl, I'm just going to read this quote he has from Karl Barth, and then we'll discuss why he has it in at this point. Karl Barth said, In order that this no should be spoken by man in his weakness and frailty, as it was spoken by the creator from all eternity, God himself willed to become man, to make his own the weakness and frailty of man, to suffer and die as man, and in this self-offering to secure the frontier between his creation and the ruin which threatens it from the abyss. God is gracious to man. He has appointed him to stand firm on this frontier to say no in covenant with him to what he has not willed but negated. But he knows man's incapacity to fulfill this destiny. And because he is unwilling to leave him unaided in the attempt to fulfill this destiny, he takes up his cause at this point and shares his creatureliness he does this in order to rescue and preserve his creature. He does it because it is unable to rescue and preserve itself. Wow. So Karl Barth eloquently writes about God's generosity, that God is not willing to leave humans in their desperate state, that God becomes frail, becomes human, becomes the creature to rescue humans hmm. right and and so Lindsay says yeah this this is beautiful wow and it and it definitely does show god's character of generosity wow. and self-sacrifice it is anthropocentric right because it, it's only talking about god's care for humans but he says the fact that this idea of generosity of god's generosity is coming through so strongly, even if it is like in a kind of an anthropocentric frame, is where Lindsay wants to start. Like that's his launching off point. Mm. He says, I want for us to focus our attention on how the concept of generosity of the higher sacrificing itself for the lower is at the heart even of highly anthropocentric doctrine that even Bart sees albeit tentatively, that this doctrine may well have meaning beyond its human sphere is not insignificant. I want to go further than Bart and suggest that if it is true 
that this paradigm of generous, costly service is at the heart of the Christian proclamation, then it must also be the paradigm for the exercise of human dominion over the animal world. Mm. We do well to remind ourselves of that ethical imperative arising from early Christian reflection upon the work and person of Jesus. And then he quotes from Philippians, Mm. where Paul writes, Take to heart among yourselves what you find in Jesus Christ. He was in the form of God, yet he laid no claim to equality with God, but made himself nothing, assuming the form of a slave, bearing the human likeness, sharing the human lot. He humbled himself and was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Mm. Yeah, you know, it sounds pretty powerful to me. I mean, we just talked about how God himself demonstrated his love for us, right? And if you think about it, things we've talked about in previous episodes, the king himself comes down to speak to, to save his representatives, us, the viceroys, Mm. the image bearers. And as we talked about in previous episodes, if you haven't listened to it, humans maintaining the image of God is not some physical, spiritual, soul quality. It's a title. It's a title of being a representative of God and ruling the way he would rule. And so if this is a model for us, kind of what that quote seems to be saying, that God himself was generous. He sent the king down, King Jesus, to come and rescue us. And then by that example, we then, the viceroys, Mm. the image bearers, then demonstrate the same generosity to creation. Right. And non-human animals. Right. No, it's amazing. It's, it's, I think it's a pretty powerful argument. It is. It is powerful. And again, the idea of saying that animals are equal to us, that was revolutionary. And the fact that he's like, that is so anemic. We need to go way further than that. The powerful, like God, the powerful need to be servants, self-sacrificing servants right. to the weak. That is, that is such a more robust theological defense of how we need to be changing. Right. And it's also gospel theology, which we've already discussed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says, Christ makes no appeal to equality. The obligation is always and everywhere on the higher, in quotes, to sacrifice for the, quote, lower, for the strong, powerful, and rich to give to those who are vulnerable, poor, or powerless. This is not some by-theme of the moral example of Jesus. It is rather central to the demands of the kingdom. Indeed, those who minister to the needs of the vulnerable and the weak minister to Christ himself. And then he quotes from Matthew where Jesus says, I was hungry, you gave me food. So basically, the idea being that when we serve when we protect, when we defend those who need it, we're doing it to Jesus himself. Right. And again, for the least of these, right. you know, who can be more least of these than animals Right. in terms of having options, having power, having a voice? Right. One well, and two, right? We, we talk about domesticated animals, the what we call the farm animals, I suppose, cows they're not like bears or lions right they they're not gonna 
come after you, so to speak. I mean, we, we, again, we live in grizzly bear country and you always have to, when you go on a hike, you got to have some bear spray with you because grizzly bear will take you down and, but a cow wouldn't, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, Unless you're stealing her baby. Well, she'll it has come, happened. She'll, no, she'll come after you, but yeah. I mean, she's not going to like rip you apart like a grizzly bear yeah. or a lion would. Yeah. And so they are really dependent on us. Absolutely. Lindsay says, in this respect, it is the sheer vulnerability and powerlessness of animals and correspondingly our absolute power over them, which strengthens and compels the response of moral generosity. I mean, he says it so well. Right. Our absolute power over them. And that is true. We have set up their world, the, especially the, the animals that are farmed. We have set up their world in such a way that they have no escape. Right. We have made sure that every aspect of their existence, we are in complete control over. Right. We have complete power over them. They have no recourse. And it's a horrible existence. They're just, it's like we torture them <laughs> and then we kill them. Right. And it's, it's that very imbalance of power that Lindsay is saying compels the response of moral generosity. And it's kind of similar. Why does child abuse offend us so, so much more even than something that happens between two adults or something, you yeah. know, even though they're both evil? And they're both violence, which is anti-God. Right. We, our hearts do go out more for the, the ones who cannot defend themselves. They have no recourse. It's the kind of same idea. Those mm. who need protection, we owe them that protection. Right. I suggest that we are to be present to creation as Christ is present to us. When we speak of human superiority, we speak of such a thing properly only and insofar as we speak not only of Christ-like lordship, but also of Christ-like service. There could be no lordship without service and no service without lordship. Our special value in creation consists in being of special value to others. So he's not, den he, this is so beautiful. He's not denying that humans have a special place in creation, a special role to play. Mm. A unique, distinct task has been given to only us. He's not denying that. He's using that and he's bolstering that and he's strengthening that and saying, yeah, you're right. We are special in creation. And the, and the only reason we're special is because we're, we're here to serve creation. We're here to protect God's good creation. That's why we're special. Wow. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. I love it. I didn't see it coming. I wasn't aware that this was where his argument was going to go, but it's really cool. It is very cool. And of course, his next little subheading is drawing the line. Before we proceed, I anticipate that people are going to be like, well, where do you really draw the line, Lindsay, when it comes to how generous we're supposed to be with God's creation? Right. He says, the first objection maintains that historically the line has always been drawn at human beings. Humans, it is argued, are cherished creatures in a way that applies to none other. So the limit of generosity must be drawn at the human slash animal boundary. Now, the second objection 
maintains that the line cannot be drawn at all because all of God's creation is valuable to God. And basically drawing the line anywhere would be anthropocentric or humanocentric. Lindsay writes, are we to draw the line at humans, excluding all other beings, including animals? Are we to extend the circle to include humans, children, and animals, but not vegetables? Or should we include all life forms, even including vegetables, but excluding inanimate? He brings up the point in this chapter that the idea of children having the right to be protected, that's kind of a relatively modern idea. It was not always the case that that's true, that right? children were seen as, as needing protection, legal mm. protection, or having rights of their own. Right. He says that he wants to justify the middle choice. The extension of the circle to include adults, children, and animals is where he thinks, biblically, we can defend this idea of sacrificial generosity. Hmm. He's saying biblically from the beginning of scriptures throughout the New Testament, there's a consistent theme that God considers humans and animals in his generosity. He cites Psalms 36, verse 6, O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. And he has like three examples of this biblical defense that we should include animals and humans in this generosity, this paradigm of generosity. Number one, basically, a lot of people try to use the days of creation as kind of a hierarchy of value. Mm. And he's like, but if you're going to use that argument, you have to remember that on the sixth day, God created land animals and humans. Mm. So if you're going to use the hierarchy by day argument, you even that argument says that we are on the same level. We were we created on the same day of, mm. of creation. The second one, I'm actually going to go ahead and read the paragraph because when I read this paragraph, I was, ah, oh, yes, this is the paragraph where I feel like what he is saying and what we've been trying to say in the foundation that we've been trying to lay are, are really lining up nicely. Nice. So let's see what you think. He says, uh, secondly, the concept of dominion. Again, it is commonly supposed that the power given to humankind over animals justifies their use or abuse by humans. Dominion has frequently been interpreted as despotism. But there is another and altogether more satisfying interpretation of this notion. Judged from its context, God shares his or her moral rule with the humans so that they can look after and care for the creation which is made. He says, for example, Genesis 2.15, where humans are specifically given the task of tilling and keeping the garden. It is important to note, however, that this divinely given commission to look after the earth eschews any right to kill for food. The dominion granted is such that Subsequent upon its bestowal, God commands a vegetarian diet. The giving of dominion over animals, which was once thought to be the touchstone justifying any abuse, is now becoming central to the view that what we owe animals is more than what we owe vegetables or arguably even ecosystems. So he hmm. talks about dominion. And how it's historically been interpreted as despotism and a justification for violence and abuse. 
And he's saying, actually, no, more and more Old Testament scholars are saying that that word dominion should be seen as caring for, tilling, all the words that we unpacked in some of our earlier episodes. Dominion is about what we owe animals. Hmm. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Sounds like we're kind of on track. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we're lining up nicely. And his third argument for why animals and humans should be included in this paradigm of generosity is the Noahic covenant. He said a lot of people forget that the language of the Noahic covenant is very much not just about this covenant between humans and God. It's very much a covenant between God, the humans, and the animals. Wow. And he says to the point where it's repeated at least five times within the Noahic covenant that it's for not just humans, but every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. This is repeated over and over again, that God's covenant is not just with humans. It's with humans and animals. And then he goes on to use some New, T- New Testament examples of the way Jesus talked about God's concern for animals. Whatever we think, he says, it does seem indisputable that Jesus is presented in the Gospels as upholding the basic attitude of the Old Testament, that the created order is God's work and as such is good. Jesus is presented as underlining the special value of humankind over the sparrows, right? When Jesus says, if I care about the sparrows, of course I'm going to care about you. So some people are like, see, God's saying he cares more about people than he does sparrows. And Lindsay is saying, the main point seems to be that God is generous so much that what is taken by the world to be of little account, namely sparrows, sold for two pennies, are in fact so valuable that not one of them is forgotten by God. Lindsay says, now, it would be difficult to contend that this inclusive paradigm of moral generosity has been widespread throughout Christian tradition as a whole. But it is worth noting that it has not been without some powerful advocates within some of the sub-traditions of Christendom. And I just, I wanted to read these people's names because I feel like these are people I want to learn more about, and mm. these are people throughout church history who have had this generosity paradigm towards animals, mm. so um, people who we don't really know much about, right? Uh, St. Bonaventure, St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Catherine of Siena, St. John Chrysostom, St. John of the Cross, St. Thomas More, John Wesley, and more recently, C.S. Lewis are but a few examples. The prayer of St. Basil the Great in the 4th century, for example, speaks of animals as our brothers and thus predates St. Francis and substantial body of hagiography linking divine generosity with the value of all living creatures. Hagiography is, by the way, I guess, biographies written about the saints. Mm. (laughs) So they have their own word for those biographies. So yeah, there have been believers throughout the centuries who have been touched by the message of generosity towards animals. Lindsay uses throughout this chapter metaphor or an analogy of this generosity paradigm as similar to the relationship between parents and children. That special relationship of protection and generosity that a parent has to have, a good parent, I guess, has for their children. Nowhere does 
a parent say, I should have equal rights with my children, which means I should be able to get my uninterrupted sleep, or I should be able to watch what I want to watch on TV, Mm. or I should be able... It's meant to be a relationship where the parent does what's best for the child. Right. Every decision is made through the lens of what is going to serve this child and actually be good for this child. Right. And and as we know, it's a huge sacrifice, right? Yeah, sure. To be a parent. Right. He uses that analogy to help us get our minds around how we should be viewing creation. Mm. He says, nothing said so far as regards children would nowadays be regarded as contentious, the idea that we need to be generous to children. Very few people would deny that we owe special obligations to children. That does not mean, of course, that children are not sometimes cruelly treated or abused or even murdered, but very few people regard these activities as anything less than morally shocking. But this has not always been so, as animals have been regarded as property without any rights or value in themselves, so also have children. Indeed, there is a formal similarity between the two, and I think this is worth drawing out. For not only have the same arguments justified abuse in both cases, so too have the arguments opposing cruelty to animals also oppose cruelty to children. Indeed, the similarity is not only formal... It is historical. In Britain, it was members of the RSPCA, and that was the first organization that was trying to fight for the rights of animals, legal, right. legal protection for animals. He said it, in Britain, it was the members of the RSPCA who helped found the first anti-child cruelty society in the world. In the United States, it was the ASPCA founder, Henry Berg, who also campaigned against child cruelty and who was instrumental in setting up the first anti-child cruelty society in the States. I think that's really interesting. I want to be really careful about the words I choose here, but what it makes me think about is, as you and I, I think, have both experienced in different ways, as you become vegan and you start to live vegan and you start to redefine and reframe how you view animals... It makes you even more, it, it makes you, it feels like it makes you even more sensitive to cruelty and violence to anybody. Yeah, across the board. It's like even in sports, like in the United States, American football, all these players who are getting concussions and getting CTE, all of a sudden that doesn't seem okay. Hmm. And so my, I grew up playing football, mm-hmm. but now all of a sudden, now that I'm vegan, you're right, I'm more aware of the damage that contact sports are doing to humans. Right. And we weren't made to beat ourselves up. That's not what we were made for. So I'm just more aware of that, more sensitive to that. It's just one example. But yes, uh, to your point, yes. Yeah, I think in the Dharma traditions, you know, they 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 view things in terms of karma and, and cutting, they see that, almost everything we do or say has inherent violence in it. And so their their goal is to cut violence out of their lives and minimize the amount of violence in their lives. Like ahimsa is their value of non of nonviolence. And so they and they would say, yeah, the more you minimize the amount of violence in your life, the more the more you are sensitive when you see it right. anywhere. Right. 
so same idea. It's it's almost. I think there's some truth to that. That the more you, the the less you tolerate violence towards anyone, you you start to feel like you have this consistent ethic across the board, right? For anybody, no, hundred percent. Now we we could keep going down this path. I mean, I even feel like in terms of speech, I know a lot of people, maybe even a lot of conservatives, don't consider speech to be violent. But when politicians are saying things that are just derogatory to me that's violence through your speech and yet many people as long as someone's not getting hurt hit like physically hurt then it seems to be okay Mm -hmm. but i mean i am way more sensitive now to i mean when leaders of a country are saying saying things to their with their words that are unacceptable that's just you know I I, i can go on but that's just one example of violence through speech in my opinion right right Further down the page here, I wanted to bring out something else that Lindsay points out. He says, as a result of our previous use or abuse of animals, such intervention has now become morally essential, whether it be to reduce the ever-increasing unwanted pet population through neutering or spaying programs, or through the preservation of animals which would otherwise perish. But I add this all-important caveat when we act to take power on behalf of animals, it must be just that for their interests as individuals and not, as usually happens, for the advancement of ours. The fact that he is bringing this up now, he's basically saying because of where we are with animals, especially the domestication of animals, whether they be pets or whether they be the domesticated farmed animals that we have manipulated and bred and genetically modified, like now it's imperative that we take care of them because they could never survive the elements. They could never survive life on their own in the wild. And so we've kind of created this dependence on humans with domesticated animals. I think that's something that, I'm sure, I think he's going to unpack it more in this book as we go. But, And then he says that we just really need to make sure when we make these decisions about how best to take care of our pets or how best to deal with domesticated animals in any way, we really start need to start thinking about it in terms of what's really in their best interest as individuals and not what's in the best interest of people. Right. So as Lindsay starts to move toward closing this chapter, he again brings up the Peter Singer brand or flavor of animal liberation or animal equality, and he points out just how utilitarian Peter Singer is. Because, for example, Peter Singer does condemn some animal experimentation, especially if it's just done for a cosmetic or things like that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, Peter Singer does say that in some cases it is it's worth the cost to put animals through painful even um, deadly experimentation if it saves human lives and I think a lot of people would agree with that when we became vegans or when we've had conversations with people about our veganism one of the things that often comes up is they'll say okay but if it came down to it if you had to choose between an animal's life or a human's life, you would definitely choose a human's life, right? And this is where it gets really interesting because Lindsay is saying, 
No. Have you not been listening to everything I've been writing right. in this chapter? No. Our, our role here on this planet is to sacrifice ourselves in protecting animals, to, in protecting those who are weak. And so, so Lindsay really comes out against this, that actually we need to be willing to bear the cost instead wow. of putting the cost on animals. So he comes out very strongly against using animals in this way in any case. So, um, uh, which I appreciate that he does criticize Singer on, yeah. on these points. But yeah, I wanted to read just um, the last part of this chapter as we move to a close. He says, but what of the objection that such generous activity on a widespread scale, supported by a framework of laws, would be detrimental to human interests? I think the answer has to be in the affirmative. The generosity view rejects the idea that the rights and welfare of animals must always be subordinate to human interests, even when vital human interests are at stake. We must be quite clear about this. Acting out the generosity paradigm will cost human beings. In the short run, the dismantling of unjust institutions such as animal experimentation, intensive farming, and the end to recreational practices such as hunting and shooting and angling for sport will involve some diminution of human pleasure or job prospects or even life chances commonly understood. The question is, however, not whether we gain from these present practices, but rather whether they are ill-gotten gains. This reminds me so much of, I mean, the, I guess the, the easiest example, the, I think the most obvious example, is when our country was debating the issue of, of being able to legally enslave people, right? And a good part of our nation's economy was built on the system of enslaving people. Mm -hmm. And the idea that freeing those people and completely turning our economy on its head, turning our economy upside down, that was really terrifying. And it was going to cost humans a lot, some humans, right. a lot to, to stop having slaves enslaved people and and he's saying the same idea like yeah for us to have to actually put into practice this generosity paradigm yeah it's going to cost some human jobs it's going to cost your family traditions it's going to cost all kinds of ways you're going to have to change or lose something right but should you have ever had those things to begin with right they were ill-gotten gains mm. So again, this is strong, and I guess I'm amazed by it. Like I've I've read a certain amount of vegan literature. This to me is like the the most revolutionary. That yes, we should expect that this is going to cost us as humans because that is the generosity paradigm. That's awesome. Leave he, it leave it to the theologians, right? <laughs> Yeah, this is how he closes. 
I state the issue plainly because there seems to be a general misconception that behaving morally to animals will not really involve humans in any fundamental change of lifestyle. Too many individuals want to speak generally about generosity to animals while still destroying their habitats, hunting them for sport, consuming their flesh. To appreciate the moral gains to humanity from desisting from exploitation, we need to take the longer view. If we ask whether humanity has lost out because it no longer has access to the ill-gotten gains achieved through widespread slavery, racism, sexism, we can see immediately that though there were indeed gains, and still are for some, without these sacrifices, moral progress would have been impossible. Whether we can now make moral progress in relation to animals is the question before us. Wow. It's pretty amazing. It is. It is. It's potent. Yeah, so the, the moral priority of the week. So for me, yeah, the, I think the two things that were the most surprising or even a little bit challenging for me to th- process was, number one, um, the idea that we can even retain the idea that humans are special within creation, but the way we are special is that we are put here to serve. So that was a, a new way of framing it for me that I thought was really strong. Right. And then the second one that we just discussed, uh, that people often argue with vegans, again, that if, that if you had to choose between a human's life and an animal's life, that you have to choose the human life. And Lindsay's actually saying no. Sacrificial service is just that. Humans should pay the price for the sake of animals. And we should at least look for solutions that don't harm animals. So I really enjoyed that chapter. Yeah. Yeah, and just uh, as you may have noticed, my participation, this is Kevin, has been limited, and that's because my job, I work for a uh, package delivery company, which you may have heard of or seen. They drive around in brown trucks. And the holiday season, roughly from November 15th to January 15th, my work schedule is crazy. So I've been putting in average 70 hour weeks. And so it doesn't leave me a lot of time to read and do research. So Sarah's kind of carrying this for the holiday season. I want to participate. I'm really excited to read this book. And it's just my time is diminished as a result of work. So and actually, it was 70 hours with a day off. Oh, that's right. That was with the holiday. This, this past week, so week, it was 70 hours with, with, with it's Thanksgiving. Gonna be, out. It's yeah, going to be oh even God. more during normal weeks for the next few weeks. Right. So, yeah, we can have mercy on Kevin and understand that, you know, him showing up and helping me talk through this is, is about as much as he has the capacity to do at the moment. So Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye.